And turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. As you're finding your place there, I want to just read a verse of scripture and kind of set the message up this morning by telling a story, a story of history. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says this, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. This verse is a verse that God used to stir the heart of William Carey. Many of you may know of William Carey. In fact, a couple years ago, some of us were in Calcutta, or now it's called Kolkata, India. And there in Kolkata, we were able to go to William Carey's church. It's been there for uh, uh, almost, little. well, it's been over there 200 years now. I think it was started in 1809. William Carey... Uh, many refer to him as the father of modern missions. He, in fact, was the first modern missionary to the nation of India, the people of India, and he served there for 41 years. He translated the entire Bible into the language of Bengali. He's also known for being a shoemaker, a pastor, a founder of the English Baptist Missionary Society, which launched modern missions. He was a botanist, a cultural anthropologist. He was an educator, started the first college, first university in the nation of India, came under the leadership of William Carey. He was an author. He was a social reformer and the first to bring the printing press to India. God used this man in incredible ways. At the age of 17, William Carey was introduced to the gospel by a friend named John Barr. They were apprentices together in a shoe cobbler's uh, home or a shoe cobbler's office there, learning the trade of tending and caring for shoes. And so William Carey heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and now that as he's a Christian, being an avid reader, he set himself to read the word of God. He wanted to devote himself to studying and knowing the word of God. He possessed a natural gifting for understanding languages, and so in that pursuit of understanding the Bible, he began to teach himself Hebrew and Greek. I mean, good night if you've ever been through that, Steve. You know exactly what I'm talking about, how difficult that is, and yet he self-taught himself Hebrew and Greek. In fact, at the age of 31, he could read the Bible in seven different languages, including Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Italian, and French, and of course, English. Shortly after his conversion and upon becoming a pastor, Carey read a book called An Account of the Life of the Late Reverend David Brainerd. The book was written by Jonathan Edwards. It told the story of David Brainerd's missionary work among the Native American tribes in the United States. He also read the journals of James Cook, an explorer which most people in England considered to be nothing more than a, a, a book full of thrilling stories. And yet, for the next five years, William would read these books and read the Word of God and would begin to devote his spare time because of the interest there, because of the adventure there, because of the calling to do something similar, began to look at and study the world. He would look at maps and make maps and gather data of locations and size and populations and all kinds of information on religions in these various places. Both of these written works began to spark something in Kerry that became deeply concerned or moved him to be deeply concerned with sharing the gospel among those who had never heard it, never had access to the word of God, never had access to a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. 
1789, William Carey became the full-time pastor of the Harvey Lane Baptist Church in Leicester, England. Through his preaching and leadership, that troubled church began to be revived, and, and Carey began to gain in popularity, began preaching at other churches, and soon all in that region, these churches who had been dead were being revived. Missions was beginning to, to begin to flourish, and there was something stirring in that area. All throughout this time, Isaiah 54, 5 be, continued to beckon Carey's heart to the nations. It, along with the Great Commission of Matthew 28, compelled him of the need to go and to make disciples. For him, just being the pastor of a local church was not enough. He needed to be on the mission field. He needed to expand the kingdom of God. And so at a minister's meeting one day, Kerry stood up and proposed that the local church should partner with other local churches and expand the gospel, send missionaries to the India and to the continent of Africa. Another man by the name of J.C. Ryland was at that particular meeting, and when he heard William Carey's call to send missionaries to the nations, he said this, sit down, young man, sit down and be still. When God wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting either you or me. I heard those words in seminary. I think I was studying Baptist history and I heard those words, and they've never left my mind that a man at a pastor's meeting would be challenged to take the gospels to the nations, would say, sit down and be still. God doesn't want nor need us to do that. That's what William Carey heard from J.C. Ryland. Well, Carey did not sit down, and he did not sit still. In fact, he used his influence to provoke the people to take the gospel to places it had never been. He was the first Baptist preacher to believe that the Great Commission found there in Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, and other places was a binding command on every generation of Christians. That's why we call him the father of modern missions. And so in 1792, William Carey published his own missionary manifesto called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. I'm thankful we don't title our books like that anymore. That's a mouthful. In this book, he dealt with one all-absorbing theme, namely the responsibility of the body of, the, of Christ to take the gospel to people who had been long neglected and the worldwide mission itself. His conviction that the missionary enterprise is the church's highest and holiest endeavor continued to increase as he pictured the desperate condition of the world where Christ was unknown and dethroned. He led the way in going to the nations. As I said, he spent 41 years in India preaching the gospel, planting churches, establishing the work of the kingdom there in that nation. And in 1834, he died on the field. He's the father of modern missions. What sent him there? It was the cry of the peoples of the world and the need they had of a savior. That cry of the peoples reminds us of our Lord's cry for people even today. You see, all throughout the Gospels, we read of Jesus feeling compassion for people. If you just take a, a stroll through the Gospels, you will see over and over again Jesus feeling, empathizing, expressing compassion for the people. 
He saw their struggles. Jesus knew their infirmities. He felt their pain. Jesus was fully aware of the spiritual condition of each and every person. That's why, like in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, he would look at the people and see them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus felt compassion. He lamented the awful spiritual condition of Jerusalem. He wanted and wished that they would look to him and embrace him as Savior and Lord, the one who could heal the broken spaces of their life. William Carey's compassion for the quote-unquote heathen lays the groundwork for what we're looking at and seeing here as we finish up the fourth chapter and the book of Jonah this morning. We discover here God's heart of compassion for lost and rebellious and wicked people. See, the call and command to arise and go to Nineveh begins to make sense when we see the compassion of God here in chapter 4. He's going to have this conversation with Jonah, who's now again in rebellion, and and really he's kind of setting up on the side of a hill and having a, a tantrum moment, and God in compassion comes to the servant, and God in compassion speaks with the servant about compassion he's wanting to extend to these wicked heathens and the enemies of his people. God's purpose in sending the prophet was to preach the gospel, and the message of the gospel, what we see is, it is one of compassion expressed for and toward sinners. And so look with me, Jonah chapter 4, let's read the chapter, we're going to finish the book this morning, and then I want to come back and point out three things. Here's what God's word says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Interesting dialogue right here taking place between Jonah and the Lord. What have we seen so far in the story? Well, the message has been judgment is coming, right? Arise and go and preach to them, call out to them, for their evil has come before me. That's what we see at the very beginning of this story. So the message is what Jonah was sent to deliver to the people of Nineveh. Judgment is coming. As I've said over the last several weeks, this would have been a message that Jonah 
happily would have embraced. He understood. He was keenly aware of all of the evil that these people did. He knew what they had done to his people, how they had killed him, imprisoned him, enslaved him. He happily would have delivered a message of judgment. So when God called him to go and preach against their sin, why does he flee? Well, we see what we've read this morning. The reason he fled is because he knew the grace and the goodness and the compassion of God. He wanted judgment on, on the people of Nineveh, but he knew God was gracious. If they repented of their sin at the preaching of the message, there's a chance they could be forgiven. So hearing this command to go and preach, Jonah arises and flees. He goes down to Joppa. He charters this ship. He gets on board, goes down into it, and, uh, trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And as the ship sails away, what does God do? He hurls a storm after it. God is after his prophet. He's after his servant. He's going to do what is necessary to get the servant back in the position he's supposed to be. The storm is raging, the sailors understand what's happening, and they're doing what they can to salvage the ship, to salvage their lives. They're calling upon their gods, they're casting things over, overboard to lighten the ship so that it doesn't turn over. They, they're doing everything they can, and what is Jonah doing? He's asleep. He's oblivious to the whole thing. He's numb to the things of God. He's awakened, he comes up, up top on the deck, and he is not surprised one bit about the storm. As we've read, we see there that he immediately says, I'm the blame. I'm the culprit. The, the storm is raging because of me. If you will throw me overboard, it's smooth sailing from here, fellas. Just throw me overboard. Why does he want to be thrown overboard? He would rather die than be in the will of God for his life because he didn't like the call. He didn't like the people he was to go and preach to. And so the sailors try to do what they think is best. They row harder. They white knuckle it. They lean in. And yet the storm gets more and more temptuous, the Bible says. And so after they're struggling and straining, they decide to give in. They cast him overboard and immediately the sea ceases its raging. Well, Jonah can only tread water for so long. And so eventually he begins to sink down into the depths of the Mediterranean. That's Jonah chapter 2. There he begins to, to feel the affliction. His desire to die is, is, is replaced with a desire to live. And he begins to call out to God, not out of affection, but out of affliction. And yet there's repentance, there's faith. God moves in a very special way there as he responds to Jonah's repentance and faith and appoints a fish to swallow him. And so what we've seen in Jonah 2 is that the impossible and the improbable is what God delights it. It's what God specializes in. God will have mercy and he will reach down to the very depths of despair to raise up those who will turn from their sin. You can feel like you're a million miles away, but as I've said for the last couple of Sundays, you are only one prayer away. Jonah's life is indicative of that calls out to God. God rescues him in the belly of the fish. So rather than a yacht pulling up and saying, hey, come out into this paradise, his deliverance is a little bit grosser, right? He's swallowed by a fish, three-day journey back to the ground, and yet God restores him. A second call upon his life comes in chapter 3. Go to Nineveh. Go preach. Jonah follows that. He preaches. God moves in a mighty and powerful way, and such power is God moving there that all of the people here, all of the re people respond with repentance and faith, even all the way up to the king. 
They're fasting. They're putting on sackcloth to show their, 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 their repentance and their acknowledgement of their sin. They're abasing themselves before the Lord. They're calling out to him. They're even making their animals fast, doing everything they can to show their repentance and faith in the Lord. There's a mighty spiritual awakening that's taking place. And then this beautiful verse at the end of chapter 10 or chapter 3, which is verse 10, shows us the gospel. That when God saw them turning to him, he relented of the judgment and the disaster and did not do it. At this point in the story, what would we expect to see Jonah doing? I know what I'd be doing. I'd be doing the hallelujah dance. Oh my goodness, God has moved in a powerful way. God has just transformed this city. The wickedness that has been here is no more. God has revolutionized that. And, 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 and the wonderful thing is he used me. I should have been a crispy critter. I should have been about the bottom of the ocean. I should have been that fish's lunch. But instead, God has preserved me. He's been gracious to me. He's used me. I would have been rejoicing in all that. And yet Jonah is angry over it. In fact, he's exceedingly angry angry, the Bible says. The worst thing Jonah could have ever imagined has now taken place. And so this closing chapter is an enigma. It is puzzling to us. It does not make sense. We wouldn't expect to see the prophet who has repented of his rebellion now showing signs of a heart change to once again express hatred and disgust toward the Ninevites. He was headed in the right direction, and it seems like he's headed in the opposite direction again. We're puzzled because the prophet who experienced God's compassion refuses to show compassion toward others. So what are we to learn from this enigmatic final section of the story? Here's what I want us to see today. In God's interaction with Jonah, his compassion for his people is what we see. That God has compassion. God has pity for people. And we learn how uncompassionate we can be toward others at times. So we see God's compassion and we see our lack of compassion in this story. Three things I want to point out, and I'm going to do them fairly quickly. First of all, I want us to look at the compassionless or a compassionless servant. Again, look with me there in verse 1. It says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, that you are merciful, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And then God asked him the question, do you do well to be angry? There in this, these verses, there in this passage, we see a compassionless servant. Jonah had tasted of the goodness of God. He had experienced his grace and mercy. And yet when the people he's preaching to in his heart of hearts, wanting them to experience judgment, when he sees them turning in repentance and faith, he wants nothing to do with it. He had felt his compassion and yet now he's feeling nothing but anger toward the Ninevites. Why does why does Jonah again prefer death over living in a world 
where his enemies have become his spiritual brothers and sisters. Why is that? That's so puzzling to me. Think about this. Jonah has experienced the goodness of God. He is the one who should have been judged. He's experienced the compassion. Why does he now prefer death over embracing these men and women as brothers and sisters? Why does he do that? It's troubling. Thankfully, we do see some good things in Jonah's life. They're minimal, but they're good. What is one of those? Well, he's praying right here. We see a level of spiritual activity in Jonah's life. Jonah prays to the Lord. Lord, is this not why I fled? Is this not why I didn't want to come do this? I knew that you were good. I knew that you were forgiving. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were compassionate. This is why I didn't want to come. Before this, he's not praying, right? God says, arise and go. He flees the opposite direction. And not one time in the first chapter do we see Jonah praying. Even when the captain of the ship says, call upon your God and perhaps he will be the one who answers. Jonah is never displayed as praying. But here he's praying. Now it's a prayer that's not real good. It's not something we would suggest, but at least he is praying. There are areas that still need sanctification. That's what we see here in Jonah's life. After experiencing the judgment waters of the Mediterranean, experiencing the fish, he is praying. He's been restored to ministry. And yet there's still areas of his life that are left untouched by the sanctifying hand of the Lord. What are some of those? Well, he's still prejudiced. Jonah has not lost his prejudices. The prophet who has known, for, known the compassion of the Lord wants no compassion to be extended to the Ninevites. He still hates them as a people. In fact, he is exceedingly angry over this whole situation. His reaction is obviously unexpected. It's unexpected because what preacher wouldn't rejoice in this? I mean, when the altars are full, the preacher rejoices, not because he's done a great thing. It's because God has done a great thing in the life of the people. We would have been doing the happy, happy dance, the hallelujah dance. That's what preachers would be doing. And yet he is sulking and abandoning the assignment. What is Jonah doing as he goes outside the city? Here's what I picture Jonah doing. Stomping his foot, smacking his fist in the ground, yelling at the top of his lungs, angry at the whole situation. Because his enemies have been forgiven and changed. He's compassionless. Where is the love of Christ in Jonah's life? Where is the grace and mercy that he has experienced? Where is that? Well, Jonah has no love for these people. He has no compassion for them. So obviously, the love of Christ and the grace of Christ is minimal in his life. That's Jonah, but what about us? Do we ever react to people in that sort of way? What do you think? Yeah, we do. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by this, personal illustration. Several years ago, my first international mission trip was to the little island nation of Haiti. I was uh, early 20s. I was right out of college, just, just had taken my first full-time uh, student pastor position. I was on staff at the First Baptist Church of Fort Smith, Arkansas, great church. And I was 
and I had already committed to go, not with my church, but with my good friend Keith Harmon. He's been here and done a couple marriage conferences with his wife over the last few years. And Keith was leading his student ministry down there on a trip. I was uh, just along for the ride, my real first international trip, getting on a plane. I'd been to Mexico before, but that was like literally across the border in Laredo. And we came right back because most of our work was on the Texas side. So first mission trip overseas, I, I was ecstatic. I mean, I loved preaching. I loved sharing the gospel. I felt like the Lord had gifted me to do certain things. And to be honest, as a young guy, I thought, I can't wait to get to Haiti. These people are going to be blessed by me and, of course, others. That, that's sort of the sentiment that uh, a young guy might have. So I'm ecstatic, looking for the, uh, forward to the opportunity. And all of a sudden, we land in Port-au-Prince, which is the capital. It's where the international airport is. And you don't just get off the plane and walk through this little corridor like you would normally. You get off the plane in Port-au-Prince, at least back then, and you're on the tarmac. And you walk across the pavement into the building. And so as soon as the door opens and I come to that door opening, I feel this warm, hot, humid putrid air slapped me in the face. If you've ever been to Haiti, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is a putrid, hot smell. I mean, it's just slapping you in the face, almost knock you over. And so I'm like, good night. Where are we at? I mean, this is awful. So we get off the plane, we walk to the air, into the airport terminal, and it's just chaos. It's, it makes the busiest, most chaotic airport in America look like uh, nothing. I mean, it's just a madhouse in there. We go through the customs, we do all of that, we walk out of the building to our bus that's awaiting us, and there's all of these people reaching and grabbing our bags, trying to... to earn some money. So they're wanting to take our bags. Well, I've never experienced any of that stuff before. And so I'm like pulling my bag back, like get off me, you know, that sort of thing. I never experienced. This is nuts. I thought drive to the place. We go through Port-au-Prince to get to the Baptist compound that we're staying at. And, and I just look at the city and it's filthy. It's nasty. I'm thinking this looks more like a trash heap than a capital city. That's what I was thinking. It's just nasty. It's hot as Hades in this place. There's no air conditioning anywhere in the city of Port-au-Prince. It was so hot at night, we would jump in the shower, get cold water if there was such a thing, and just run and jump in the bed and never dry off to just try to keep ourselves somewhat cool. It was that hot. So first three days of this nine-day mission trip was eternal. I mean, maybe not eternal, but it was just a shock to me. I was like, let's go home. Where's the next uh, bus going back to the airport? I'm ready to go back to Arkansas. I'll live with our chickens. I'll live with the things that we have in Arkansas. That place is nuts. I, I literally, I had a terrible attitude for the first three days. And then all of a sudden, God began to just change my heart. Began to, to change my heart and help me understand that the way I was viewing the people there was unfair and unkind. God did a work in my life that week. The last six days of that trip was just a, a 180 for me. My, my heart beat for them. My heart had a love for these people. God moved in their lives in a, in a very tremendous way. And, and it, largely it's because he was moving in our hearts. way. Many of us, it was our first time overseas. There was no compassion in my heart when I stepped off that plane for the people of Haiti. I was coming there to be a blessing. And yet God had to show me that I was not much of a blessing myself. This lack of love can be prevalent on the mission field, but it's not isolated to the mission field. 
is all too often true in our everyday life. You see, how many times do we resent, how many times do we look down on people who are not like us, who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't approach like, life like us? We have no compassion for them, and yet we are believers of Jesus Christ who've experienced his compassion, and we don't bestow that on others. If we're honest this morning, we are too often just like Jonah, compassionless servants instead of a compassionate believer who's known the compassion of Jesus. That brings us to a second thing I want to point out. We see here a compassionate Savior. Look at verse 4. The Lord asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Is this a right and good behavior on your part? See, Jonah is disappointed with God's character in all of this, but it's exactly that character which responds compassionately toward this wayward servant. When when the prophet abandoned his post and went outside the city, what does the Savior do? What is God doing? He's pursuing Jonah. Jonah, are you doing well? Jonah, what are you doing? Why are you sitting outside the city? There is, Jonah has made this makeshift hut, and he's, I believe, setting up above the city so he can see what's going on, disdaining the whole situation. What does God do? He sees that he's in discomfort because it's hot. He sees that the sun is scorching his head. He's made a makeshift booth, but it's not enough. And so God, in his compassion, appoints a plant to grow up in the single day to provide shade for him. It's a castor oil plant, most likely. Most scholars believe that the Hebrew word there speaks of the castor oil plant. It's a fitting plant. It's a fitting use of botany in this situation to speak to Jonah's situation. What's the big deal about a castor oil plant? Well, it's castor oil is used in, as a healing agent. It's often used to cure digestive issues in people. Jonah's inward man was not right. His gut was not right. His heart was not right. He needed to be changed from the inside out. And here we have the compassionate work of the Savior graciously working to bring about this needed change, which brings us to a third point. We see a compassionless servant, a compassionate Savior. Now I want you to see a compassionate scolding. Look at verse 10. And the Lord says, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left hand as well as the cattle? See, the prophet had learned much from the Lord since chapter 1. Since that first call to go to Nineveh, he had learned a whole lot. Listen to how Warren Wearsby in his commentary talks about these lessons. Wearsby says this, in chapter 1, Jonah learned the lesson of God's providence and patience, that you cannot run away from God. Chapter 2, he learned the lesson of God's pardon, that God forgives those who call upon him. In chapter 3, he learned the lesson of God's power as he saw a whole city humble itself before the Lord. Now, Jonah had to learn the lesson of God's pity, that God has compassion for lost sinners like the Ninevites, and his servants must also have compassion. See, Jonah had been used of God to bring thousands of people to saving faith, but he did not love the people he was preaching to. That's eye-opening for me, that, that I could be used of God on an individual 
level to share the gospel with a person, but yet never really have a love for that person. That, that I could be used of God in a corporate setting to preach and, and, and just beckon the call to people to believe the gospel and yet really not have a love for them. See, I went to Haiti thinking, I'm going to go preach the gospel. If there's no love in my heart for the people of Haiti, there is today. God changed my heart down there. I've been to Africa many times in the nation of Uganda. I have a deep affection for the people there. Why? Because God's developed that in my life. Been to Spain to work with people from, from North Africa. There's a deep love there for those people because God has developed those things. Jonah had to learn compassion. He needed this desperately in his life. And the object God used in this lesson was the castor oil plant. It's amazing. He had a pity for this plant. Such a trivial thing. It's just a plant. Sometimes I think we want to read into this that he was just ticked off that he didn't have his comfort anymore. I don't think that's the reading here. He pitied the plant. For some reason, the fact that this plant died moved his heart. He was compassionate toward it. And God used that to show him, hey, you pity a plant that you didn't do anything for. It's just a plant. It, it wasn't even here a long time. It was like a vapor here one moment and gone the next. You pity that plant, and yet you have no pity for these humans. 120,000 plus. I told you a few weeks ago, if you add in all the suburbs of Nineveh, it could have been upwards of 600,000 people or more. And God is saying, you have no pity for them, and yet you pity this plant. Should not I, the God of creation, the ones who brought these people into existence, should I not have pity on them? The meaning there, the emphasis there is you also should have pity. And so God here graciously takes Jonah on a journey to teach him compassion, to teach him love for his enemies. This is the gospel at work in our lives. You see, like Jonah, we need to learn that it's possible to experience and accomplish a whole lot for the Lord while still keeping areas of our lives walled off to the Lord. This was an area walled off to the Lord. Jonah says, here, I'll go, but I really don't love these people. I'll go and preach. I'll be obedient. I might even have some momentary affection for these people, but I really have no love for them. I'm going to wall that off in my life. And yet the gospel beckons us to open up all the doors of our life, all the compartments, and allow the Holy Spirit in there to move and to work. And so it's amazing and frightening at the same time to think that we can effectively share the gospel with people, lead people to faith in Christ while not possessing a genuine love for them. May we pray this morning, may we seek God's favor this morning and ask him to give us a genuine love and affection for the people that we are called to serve. People who are not like us. People who don't think like us. It's easy to kind of run with the, the, the same crowd that we're in, but we need to get outside of that and have love and affection for others. We need what Sinclair Ferguson would call a missionary experience, very similar to what I shared with you in my own life. We need, to, we need to and we must take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations because God has commanded us to do so. And yet we also need to take the gospel because in doing so, God uses, uh, uses it to make us more and more like Christ. You see, sometimes, and I'm just using the mission experience as an example, but Ferguson in his 
commentary on this book talks about how many times on the mission field, as a missionary, God is sending you to go to a people, but he's not so much just sending you to reach them with the gospel. He's sending you there, there so that in doing that, he's able to work on those areas of your life that he can't work on here. That's why some of us need to get up and go do something. Maybe we need to get on a plane, Lord willing, when that happens again next year, God make it happen, right? We, we got to get back on the field. But some of you need to go overseas because there is something that happens when we're working amongst other peoples that is life-changing. And so he says many times the worst within us is brought out when we are taken out of our normal home context, work under pressures never before encountered, and experience the frustrations that come from a new culture and language. He says sensitivities are revealed that would normally have been hidden by our Christian fellowship at home. There is, he says... Or there he may find what a narrow-minded, prejudiced, conceited, prayerless, fruitless, and uncooperative believer he really is in his heart of hearts. That's where Jonah is at. Man, I'm prayerless. I'm conceited. I'm fruitless. I'm uncooperative. I am prejudiced and narrow-minded. And God is expanding all of that, saying, I am the God of the earth. Isaiah 54, 5. That's who he is, the God of the earth. He is not just the God of Israel. He is not the God of America. He is the God of the nations, the God of the nations. Jonah had to learn compassion. And for us, we need to learn compassion See, we can get so tunnel visions. We can get caught up in the political argument of the moment and neglect this greater and weightier spiritual proclamation of the age. We need to have a focus on evangelism. Going back to William Carey, as William Carey began to respond to the burning passion for lost souls among the nations, he heard J.C. Ryland's statement, sit down, young man, and sit still. If God needs you or me, he'll call us. He doesn't need us. That's what Ryland was saying. He doesn't need us. See, Ryland needed a, John, a Jonah 4 type lesson in his own life. He needed to learn the lesson of compassion for himself because he had none. He was a compassionless servant, which is an oxymoron. Two opposite statements. How can you be compassionless and be a servant of Christ? You cannot. We serve a compassionate Savior. Thus, if we are His, we should and ought to have compassion ourselves. The terms are mutually exclusive. So we discover in Jonah that this all too often is true of God's people. But thankfully, we have a compassionate Savior who pursues us in our compassionlessness. That's a mouthful. How does the book of Jonah end? Jonah, should I not have pity for Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle book ends? Why does it end like that? We don't know what Jonah did. How did Jonah respond to this? Did Jonah move toward compassion? When God confronted him earlier in the book, he was moved, right? Moved out of affliction to hopefully affection, but now he's 
not showing much affection. He's not compassionate toward people. What does Jonah's response what is Jonah's response? How does he respond to the Lord? We don't know. Perhaps the book ends this way to draw us as the reader into the story. I think that's what's happening here. The Holy Spirit has set this book up so that we realize that we are just like Jonah, many times compassionless toward people. How are we going to respond to this? I hope we respond with compassion. I hope that we're drawn to see people as either lost or redeemed, that we see them as those who are on their way to heaven or those who are on their way to hell. I hope we see them as it doesn't matter what color your hair is. It doesn't matter if you even have hair. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you grew up on. It doesn't matter your educational level, your economic level. It doesn't matter what you vote. Let that one sting for a minute, right? This is a predominantly Republican church. There's probably a few of you Democrats in here. I was going to joke about another word, but that's probably controversial to say that and not good for a preacher. But, uh, right? but sometimes we, we, we align ourselves so ideologically that we don't give room for the gospel. That's not compassion. How will we respond to the message of Jonah? Will we subvert God's work among the peoples like Jonah tried to do? Or will we embrace and do the work of the gospel among the people. How do you know if you have compassion? I think here's the answer. I think the answer is found in how quick you are to share the gospel with people and integrate them into your church circles. Here's, here's what I mean by that. We may be willing to share the gospel with someone who's not like us, but will we bring them back to our circle? Or will we be embarrassed? Well, I don't know if I really want that person running around in my circle at church. I don't know if I really want that person running and knowing my friends. I really don't know if I want to be around them all the time. Well, you probably don't have a ton of compassion. And as I say that, I'm feeling it myself, right? Do we have compassion? The gospel is a message of compassion, calling sinners, lost people, rebellious people, wicked, evil people to repentance and faith. But it doesn't just call a type of person. It calls all types of persons to repentance and faith. You know, the gospel is an incredible message. It's a message that says no matter what you've done, forgiveness is available. It says this, that you can be far from God and with one prayer, one call, one cry out to the Lord, you can be near. It's a message that says, as a follower of Jesus, if you're walking at a guilty distance, you feel like you're 100 million miles away, but if you will call out to him, you are brought near again. You're never far from him. That's the message of the gospel. So how will we respond this morning? We don't know how Jonah responded. As much as I can tell from history, we have no recollection, no historical account of what Jonah's life was like after this moment. But here's what we do know about ourselves. We're in charge of what's going to happen tomorrow in our life. As we either respond with compassion or we continue to walk in compassionless. I'm beating that drum on purpose. We need to have compassion.